Throughout the Christian centuries, theologians have really struggled with the proper relationship between the church and the state. How do these two God-ordained entities relate one to another? Essentially, four big ideas have been put forth over the centuries and have been tried to one degree or another. One of these is called Erastinianism. It's a big word. Erastinianism. It's named after a Swiss theologian of the 16th century by the name of Thomas Erastus. And he put forth or is credited with putting forth the notion that the relationship between the church and the state is that the state has authority over the church. That is, the state regulates the activities of the church. 16th century Swiss theologian, Erastinianism. Another popular theory, and in fact one that dominated the church for close to a millennium, is what's called as Constantinianism. Constantinianism. And Constantinianism basically says that the state favors the church and the church supports the state. So the government has a favors in terms of tax incentives and protection and many other things, the church, and the church comes along and supports the state in its endeavors. Constantinianism. A third theory of the relationship, proper relationship between the church and state is what's called theocracy. A theocracy. In a theocracy, the church rules over the state. That is, the church becomes the highest authority of the land. The fourth theory is called partnership. Partnership. That recognizes that God has ordained two great entities, the church and the state, and that they each have an important sphere of operation and that when they remain in their proper spheres, they partner together under the providential rule of God in promoting society and all the benefits that God intends for His people. Partnership. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament, the people of Israel operated under a theocracy. A theocracy. That is, that Yahweh was king. When Moses built the tabernacle according to the pattern that had been given him by God and prayed and the Shekinah glory came down upon the Holy of Holies, God was taking His throne among the people of Israel. It was a theocracy. That is, a, a religious crime was a civil crime. The highest authorities in the state, in the, in the in the state at that time were the priests, specifically the high priest. So that was the theocracy. Throughout Christian centuries, we have tried Constantinianism, 
and we have tried Arastinianism to some degree, and they have both shown themselves to be very detrimental to the health of the church and very dangerous to live under. Under those philosophies of the relationship between church and state, untold misery and hardship has happened when the church becomes the enforcer of civil laws and result in persecution that arises. It's just not a good form of government and church relations. The most perfect form will be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes His great millennial kingdom, a 1,000-year dictatorship in which Christ will rule upon His throne as the prophets say, with a rod of iron. It will be the time when peace and prosperity extend across this globe, a time of entire righteousness, a time of of the, the aggressive suppression of sin. But until we arrive at that time when Christ returns, we are left with one of these other four options, the best of which is what we call partnership, partnership, And it is indeed what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 13. So if you'll open your Bibles there to Romans chapter 13, we'll continue our study this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available for you to use. They're in the pew rack in front of you or under your seat if you're on an aisle. You'll take one of those Bibles out and open it up to page 1137. You'll arrive at the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Until the millennial kingdom comes, partnership is the best we have. The best we have. Let me just read Romans 13, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7 to set the context for the things that we need to talk about together this morning. Paul writes, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God too good for you. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax, to whom taxes due, custom, to whom custom, fear, to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. 
The Christian church has a priceless treasure, an absolutely priceless treasure. In fact, our meal here earlier in the service was a celebration of that priceless treasure. It is the people of God, the church alone, that has the ability to transform a human soul. Entrusted to us is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the only God-ordained institution that has such a gift, such treasure, such power. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that I will build my what? My church. I will build my church. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, He gives the Great Commission, right? And he says to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. In the context of Matthew, the preaching of the gospel is the the evangelism and planting of churches. Because it is the church that is the pillar and support of the truth, Paul writes to Timothy. That we have the deposit of of divine truth. We have the precious treasure. Paul says in Corinthians that that treasure is in clay pots, common vessels. And it is that precious treasure, it is that glorious gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, that can do what no other institution can do. And that's to reach inside the human heart and transform it. To take those who are enemies of God, at enmity with God, destined for eternal destruction, and transform them so that they become His friends, His children. Only we can do that. And it is by the gospel alone that we can do that. Everything else... Everything else that the organized church can do, the state can do as well. You need to understand that. Everything else we do, fellowships, social engagements, community events, anything and everything that you can think of that we can do can be done by the state. Except this. The state cannot change a human heart. They can't reach inside. There's no power to go inside to a person's soul and transform it. Only we can do that. And that's why we're here. And that is our sphere. Now, I'm not saying that the church should not be involved in other activities. Just because the government can do it doesn't mean the government should do it. That's two different questions. So we're not saying that the church should have no social involvement. That's not the point. What we're saying is that in any kind of social engagement or social involvement we might have, we must remember our main priority. We must not lose the sphere in which God has placed us and uniquely given us power. And that is the gospel. Whatever we do, the gospel must be part of it. For if the gospel is not part of what we do, then it is no longer distinctly Christian. Now, throughout 
the centuries, this is a lesson that is very elusive for the church. Many, many activities have been engaged in for very noble purposes, but somehow along the way, gospel preaching begins to diminish and eventually dry up, and what is left is only the social engagement, and the, and the gospel preaching has somehow been swept aside under the rug. And I think I know the reason. It's pretty simple. Gospel preaching is hard. It's confrontational. It's uncomfortable. It gets people mad at you, and in certain contexts, it gets you killed. So it's easy. It's easy to do everything but gospel preaching, but whatever it is we do, it must include gospel preaching. It has to. Or we have strayed out of our sphere. We dare not forget the gospel. We dare not downplay the gospel in anything we do. This is our gift. This is our stewardship. This is our entrustment from God to an unbelieving world. But here in Romans 13, Paul is speaking about the sphere of the government. In chapter 1, or excuse me, in verse 1, chapter 13, he labors a way to, to enable us to understand that the government is ordained of God. It is not a social convention. It is not just a few people got around together and said, you know what, it would be a good idea if we had a government. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea too. What kind of government would you like to have? Gee, I don't know. What kind would you like to have? Let's put something together. And then we don't like it, we'll change it. Government is ordained of God. Look at verse 1. There is no authority except from God. That is, God alone has sovereign authority and He delegates it to whom He wishes. The end of the verse, those which exist, those ruling authorities, those governments which exist are established by God. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. You can go back online and listen to it. But God has raised up government. It is every bit as part of the divine plan as is the church. We need to understand that. We need to believe it. We need to embrace it. The government has a role to play, an ordained, divinely ordained role to play in the civilization called humanity. And the church dare not enter into the government's realm. When we stray into their realm, there is no end to the mischief and hardship and heartache and indeed evil that will come. Even a cursory reading of the history of Western civilization for the last 2,000 years vividly demonstrate what happens when sincere, God-fearing people enter into the realm of government and take to themselves an authority that is not theirs. Our own country has illustrations of such things. We must be careful. We need to stay where we belong. And the government needs to stay where it belongs. And together, both operating in their spheres, their divine areas of authority, will operate together in a partnership that will be mutually supportive of each other in the great plans of God. We need to understand that. We need to believe that. So here we go. 
we are continuing to examine what Paul has to say to us with regard to our relationship to those that are in governmental authority over us, our leaders. And that is that we need to submit to them. We need to submit to them. So that we might begin to understand and take seriously our civic responsibilities. This morning we're looking at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 where Paul establishes the purpose of government. This is where he spells it out for us. Verse 1, as I said, he provides two reasons why we are to submit to the governing authorities. Here he supplies two more. Notice verse 3. It begins with four. Do you see it? Four. You see that? That means that he's supplying a reason for or because. Simply put, it's this. We are to submit to government because government maintains societal order by promoting good and punishing evil. It's as simple as that. Government is ordained of God. It is raised by God. It is established by God for a very specific purpose. At its core, that purpose is to promote good and to punish evil. That's what it does. Now, it's interesting, by the way, letting your eyes rest here in verses 3 and 4, to notice that twice, verse 4 actually, the government is called a minister of God. Do you see it in the beginning of verse 4? For it is a minister of God to you for good. Second half of the verse, for it is a minister of God. They are ministers of God. Diakonos is the Greek term. We get the English word deacon from this term. The government is a deacon of God to us. It is a minister of God. It it serves a purpose for us and to us. Now, it's fascinating that Paul would choose this term. Because when we think of the word deacon, what do we think of? We think of a servant or a minister within the people of God, right? Within the church. We see it as a holy calling, a noble occupation. Something established by God. God calls deacons. Wouldn't we say that? We recognize the call of God on a man's life that he is a a deacon. He is a servant, a minister of God within the church. Paul's using that same kind of terminology here. And he's applying it to the government. And he's saying it is And they who occupy, because, by the way, government doesn't exist as an abstract concept, right? Government is embodied in people. So it is they, the governing authorities, that are ministers of God, deacons of God. I don't have time to develop all this, but let me just share with you one implication you can begin to think about. Because the implication of that kind of statement is that those who work in governmental service are called by God. Firemen, policemen, school teachers, county workers, whatever it is, those in form of government, the president, the Congress, judges, on and on, are deacons. That makes it a very noble calling, doesn't it? Actually, it puts them theologically on the same kind of footing as elders and deacons and pastors. It smashes 
the distinction between the sacred and the secular. Oh, pastor, you're, you're called of God. You're a man of God. You're an elder. You're set apart by God. Oh, you, you must have a, a special pipeline to God. Oh, pastor, you pray. We gather together, right? You pray because you're closer to God than we are. You have an occupation that, that, that makes you, in the eyes of God, look up, be looked upon more favorably. I'm just a fireman. Wrong. That's wrong. That's, that's bad thinking. You're a fireman. You are called of God. You are a deacon of God to minister in society. You're every bit as called as I am. And every bit as accountable, by the way, as I am to how you handle the responsibilities that you've been called to do. Now, we will readily admit, just because someone's called to a position, that doesn't mean they do a good job. Isn't that right? You can be called as a fireman, called as a police officer, called as a judge, whatever it might be, and you can do a really poor job with it. Just like you can be called as a deacon, called as an elder, called as a pastor, whatever, and do a really poor job of it. We shouldn't equate performance with calling. There's a lot to think about here. A lot to think about. But Paul says here, verses 3 and 4, there's a purpose to government, and he gives it to us. Number one is to promote good. The first purpose of government is to promote good. Keep your thumb there, and you can turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, page 12, 12. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and following, Peter writes, so this is apostolic doctrine. Do you understand this? And they were continually devoting themselves to what? First thing, apostles' teaching. This is apostles' teaching. Peter says, verse 13, first, first Peter chapter 2, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see verse 14 again? Government has been established by God for, for a twin purpose. It is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Back to Romans 13. Government has been established for two reasons. It is a minister, verse 4, of God to you for good. It is avenger, the end of verse 4, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. These are the twin purposes of government. This is their sphere. This is where they belong. This is what God has given to them. This is what God will hold them accountable for, by the way. All those serving in government at whatever level and whatever function will answer to God for how well they perform the call that He placed upon them. Whether they're believer or unbeliever. To promote good. Now how does a government promote good? And remember, contextually, Paul is writing about the Roman government. Isn't that right? 
He's writing about the Roman government. He's writing about the Roman government under Nero. And what we know is that Nero was one of the worst of the Caesars. This was a brutal government. This was an oppressive government. And yet Paul can write here, under inspiration of the, authority, of the Spirit of God, that is, God speaking right through him and saying to, to those early believers and through them to us that government is good and it promotes good. How? How does it happen? Well, in its most basic form, it happens by regulating society. That is, by various laws that promote good behavior. It keeps, a, it keeps a rain, it keeps a lid on man's evil passions. It orders society. Prior to the establishment of government, the world went into such a tailspin that God washed the planet clean. Genesis chapter 6. And it is coming out of the flood that Genesis 9, a government is first established. It is for the regulation of society. It is for the promotion of good. It is for the suppression of wickedness. We cannot underestimate the significance of that blessing. We cannot. How many have ever heard of the Pax Romana? The Roman peace. The Roman peace. That brutal Roman government crushed rebellion. It was the the worst vice possible in the Roman society would be to be seditious or rebellious against Roman rule. They were very swift. They were very brutal. And they crushed all rebellion. Beyond that, evildoers, robbers, murderers, thieves were suppressed. Rome established a system of roads across the whole empire. Roads that can be still traveled on to this very day. Why? So they can move their armies quickly from place to place to place in order to suppress rebellion. And it was in the context of this Roman peace, this suppression of piracy on the Mediterranean Sea and the suppression of bandits on the, on the roads that allowed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to spread so that within one generation it completely rimmed the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, how did it go from 11 scared disciples in a room on the night of His crucifixion to conquering the Roman Empire? It's partially accounted for by the Pax Romana. That is the promotion of good that the Roman government did serving God in their sphere. Now, they didn't know they were serving God, but they were. It's interesting, by the way, that Paul personalizes his statements here in verses 3 and 4. Grammatically, Greek makes this well, well known. The English Bible can't do this for you, but it's significant enough to note that he, he changes his pronouns from, from plural to singular. He goes from a second person plural, you, or if we were down south, y'all, or y'all, 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 all, I think that's how they say it, something like that, to you. See, in Southern California, we, we can't designate, can we? We say you. I don't know whether we're talking to you or I'm talking to you. 
So if I say y'all, then y'all, I'm talking second plural, which is how Paul is speaking through chapter 12, most of chapter 12. It's here in verse 3 that he switches to a second person singular and he makes it exceedingly personal with people. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you, personal, do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. He, he personalizes this, this truth. He drives it down. The believers in Rome, and by extension you and I, we must live out The reality of our faith that he has spoken of here in chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, to the end of the chapter. These are the Christian virtues, right? We we slugged our way through that. These Christian virtues, as they are being lived out in society, the response will be that the government will see us as good citizens. You want to have no fear of authority, Paul says, personally, then live for Jesus Christ. Start living for others instead of yourself. Start loving your neighbors. Start living for the benefit of those around you. And the government will see you as a good citizen, somebody they will want to have in their society. We will be a welcome addition. So here's the question. What kind of reputation do we have in our society today? When we think of conservative, Bible-believing Christians in the public arena today, what kind of reputation do we really have? How are we viewed? You know the answer. We are viewed very, very negatively. We are viewed as another special interest group, another political action committee, another pig at the trough, trying to get our share of government pork. That's how we're viewed. But let me ask the question this way. How are you viewed? How does your local government view you as a citizen? What do they think about you? Are they glad you are a citizen of Upland? Laverne? Claremont, Pomona, Ontario, Rancho Cucamonga. Are they glad you're one of their citizens? Interesting question, isn't it? Makes it for a very interesting question. Now let me say here, obviously, Paul's statement in verse 3 is not true all the time and in every place. There are exceptions. History records exceptions. In fact, the Roman government itself would become a persecutor and killer of Christians. Although it is interesting to note that the Roman government, for the most part, persecuted and killed Christians because they thought Christians were seditious. They thought that they were a threat to the unity of the empire. It wasn't so much because of their religion, it was because of their stubbornness of their religion that they refused to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar, and to pledge their loyalty to the crown that was on that basis they were seen as seditious and persecuted. So we need to understand Paul's statements here, that he's not saying for all time in every place 
There'll never be governmental pressure or oppression of believers. We know that's not true. What, he was, what he's saying is that the government has been established for the purpose of promoting good, which is law-abiding society, and when we live the ethic of the New Testament, a transformed life, then we will be the kind of citizens the government will want to have. Promoting good. Second, purpose of government, verse 4, to punish evil. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. The sword, spoken of here, is the instrument of capital punishment. Capital punishment in the Roman Empire was by decapitation. Crucifixion was reserved for seditious people. That's it. Roman citizens could not be crucified. They would be beheaded as Paul himself would find out 15 years later. The mention of the sword here is the mention of capital punishment. If you personally do what is evil, you should be afraid because the government does not carry the power of capital punishment for no reason. That's the idea. This, by the way, is an argument from the greater to the lesser. The government has the ability to cut your head off, then the government has the ability to legislate behaviors up to and including those which would necessitate having your head cut off. The government can legislate property matters because it is property matters that generate the crimes of passion that ultimately bring about the necessity for capital punishment. That's how the argument is constructed. If they can do the greatest thing, they can do the lesser things that line up underneath it. The government has the authority to regulate robbery and rape and and property crimes and on and on and on because all of those things contribute to the lawlessness of society, to the wickedness of society, to the evil of society that results in the taking of innocent human life of which the government is designed to suppress. Therefore, they execute. Notice again the end of the verse. It says that it's an avenger of God who brings wrath. That's fascinating, by the way, because look up at the end of chapter 12. And that which has been forbidden to us, verse 19, is explicitly given to the government. Chapter 12, the end of it, we are not to be an avenger. We are not to take revenge on people. We are not to use our wrath. We are to wait upon God, and God will deal with it, and He will deal with it day to day through the establishment of His government. It is their realm, not yours, and not the church's. We don't kill heretics. We kick them out of the church. That's what's been done. That's our power. It's a fascinating reality, by the way, that totalitarian governments, and I'm not advocating a totalitarian government, but it is an interesting fact that totalitarian governments have lower crime rates than free Western democracies and, of course, countries in which there is no government at all. It is in those countries that we would look to and say they are brutal and they are oppressive that actually have the lowest crime rates. Isn't that fascinating? 
In that sense, they're a government, and, and again, I'm not advocating it, but I'm telling you that the role of the government there is clearly identified, clearly utilized, and crime is suppressed. They promote good. They punish evil. Their avenger brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Government has a twofold purpose promoting good, punishing evil. Verse 5. Paul summarizes his argument so far. Verse 5 is a summary statement. You see, it begins with wherefore. Wherefore. That is, he's, he's pulling together what has gone on in the text prior to this. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. He's summarizing the teaching to date. And he's saying simply, providing two reasons here, you see, not only but also. Do you see that, by the way, in the text? Take a look at that. Let your eyes go down to the text. See, not only but also. That means there are two reasons. The not only reason and the but also reason. Okay, two reasons given here why we are to be in subjection to the governing authority. He's putting the final nails in his argument. And in doing so, he's referring back to what has just previously occurred. Not only because of wrath, argument number one. Not only because of wrath. When he refers to wrath, he's referring to what he has just talked about in verses 3 through 4. The government is the minister of God on earth to avenge evil, to bring God's wrath upon the evildoer. It is the reality that crime does not pay. That is one reason to be in submission to governing authorities. Because if you do not submit your heart to them and your behavior to them, you will be punished. Now, that truism, by the way, that crime does not pay, is only a truism. We can think of illustrations, of course, where it does. But we're to be in subjection because the government punishes those that aren't. That's kind of the base motive, if I can say it that way. That's the, that's the lower motive. Let me illustrate it this way. It's like child behavior. When children are little, they do what they're told. They do the right thing. Why? Come on, parents. Why? Because if you spare the rod, you will... Yeah, that's right. Little children do what they're told, not because they are driven by an inner motivation for virtue. They do what they're told out of avoidance of the rod. That's why. Because of the fear of wrath. So I'm saying it's a baser motive. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a noble motive. It's a necessary motive in the raising of your children. And if you ignore that motive, I don't want to be around your kids when they grow up. But it is not what should drive them the rest of their lives. Christians should submit to government Not only because government will clobber you if you don't, but also 
Look at the end of the verse. But also for conscience' sake. I'm calling it religion. Why do you submit to the government? Two reasons, wrath and religion. How's that? Okay? Wrath. If you don't, you will be punished. That's the lower motive. The higher motive is religion. That's why we submit. For conscience' sake. The conscience is the internal mechanism placed within every human by God that that evaluates our thoughts, our words, and our deeds against a fixed standard of righteousness. That's what the conscience does. It is placed in us by God, and it is programmed by God with basic virtues that are shared across all of humanity. You can't take your neighbor's wife is a basic rule of righteousness, a basic virtue that extends across all of humanity placed within us by God. Murder is wrong. These are base virtues. Then the conscience is shaped and informed and enhanced by Christian teaching. That is, by by the special revelation of God. That is, by the Word of God. As we take deeply the Word of God, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we become transformed where? Here. Transformation of our thinking, which moves down into the depths of our soul and controls our will and our behavior. And we have a higher more informed conscience. And it is that conscience that then compares our deeds and our words and our thoughts, and it either excuses us or accuses us, Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. That is, what we do, our conscience compares to the standard of righteousness that we know, and it either says, good job, or it says, lawbreaker, lawbreaker, Uh, 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 lawbreaker. I appreciate the emails I got this week from a few of you who said that your driving habits have improved. (laughs) Or at least you're attempting to improve your driving habits. Your conscience has now been informed by the Word of God. Every time you step on the gas pedal and you go faster than the posted speed limit, you're going to hear, uh, uh, uh. Okay? You're in violation of your conscience. And yes, I enjoyed putting that on you because I've had it on myself and I needed to share it. (laughs) Seems only fair. Not only because of wrath, the end of verse 5, but also for conscience' sake. When he he speaks about conscience' sake here, he's actually rolling up to verse 1. He's picking up and summarizing the argument of verse 1. What he's saying here is that that in our conscience we know and we approve the will of God. We understand His sovereignty. We believe it. We rejoice in it. We glory in it. Therefore, because God, the expression of God's sovereignty in this sphere is government, then we, by our conscience, rejoice in government and willingly submit ourselves to it. That's the way the argument is flowing. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And not only is it the right thing to do, it's what we want to do. We've been transformed, right? The gospel is transforming us, and it's changing us from being lawbreakers to being those that embrace the laws of God, even as they are mediated through human government. And we embrace them, we establish them, and we obey first time, every time, and with a 
Happy spirit. Let's try it again. First time, every time, and with a happy spirit. Why happy spirit? Why when I go to the DMV and I have to wait in line and, I'm, and they seem like they go out of their way to frustrate you, why and should I embrace that with a happy spirit? Answer. They are a minister of God. Established by Him for the, for the ordering of society. What a nightmare it would be on the road if there were no traffic laws. If there were no standards for getting driver's licenses. No eye tests. No mandatory insurance. And on and on it goes. Would you like to drive in a road like that? I wouldn't. Bad enough as it is. So I understand the purpose of the, de- of the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I rejoice in it. And when I'm waiting in line, and I'm looking at my watch, and I'm wondering, am I going to make my next appointment or not? I remind myself, I preach the gospel to myself, and I say, God has raised up this institution for my betterment, my good, my protection. And yes, it's inefficient. And yes, it's annoying. But it's good. And I'm going to tell myself it's good. I'm not going to believe it. My conscience is telling me it's good. Listen, let's, let's summarize it this way. Christians obey the law not out of the fear of punishment. Okay? This is your takeaway this morning. Christians Do not obey the law out of the fear of punishment. Punishment is for the pagans. Punishment is for the unbelievers. Punishment is necessary because law governs all society, right? Verse 1, let every person be in subjection. So the punishment phase of the law is for those who do not believe, whose consciences have not been captivated by Christ. But they're not for us. If you obey a law just because you're afraid of being caught, you are acting in a lack of faith, unbelief at that moment. When you embrace the law as God's good for us and you accept it as and understand it as is good for us under His sovereign plan for humanity, then you are acting out of noble Christian virtue. I've used this before. I'll use it again. Carpool lane, two or more. Violation of the carpool lane, the fine is, last I looked, $341. Now, where they came up with that number, I have the foggiest idea. Like a buck three ninety-eight. You know, it's just a, it's kind of a, it's a crazy number. But anyway, it is the number. So why don't I cross the, you know, when the traffic's really slow, why don't I just cut into that, that carpool lane that's beckoning to me? Come to me, come to me. This is a $341 fine. Is that, do I look over my shoulder, left and right? Nobody there? In I go, right? Or I want to get out. There's my exit. And out I go. That's pagan behavior. That's what pagans do. Believers, we don't need a sign that says $341. All we need is a double yellow line. Just a double yellow line that says, what? Double yellow line? You're not to cross it. That's all we need. We don't need a policeman on the corner to keep us from rolling through the stop sign. 
We don't. Right? Yeah. We're working on it, Pastor. <laughs> I'm working on it too. I'm not, I'm not telling you I'm here. I'm just saying this is the standard. And it's by faith I embrace the standard. And I begin to order my life according to the standard. And let the police chase the crooks, not the Christians. Pagans obey out of fear of punishment. Christians obey out of love for virtue. There it is, bottom line. That's Paul's argument. Pagans obey out of fear of punishment. Christians obey out of a love for virtue. So take this home with you this afternoon and think about it. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? The next time you look in your rearview mirror and you see flashing blue lights, you don't have to get any moment of anxiety at all. Because it couldn't possibly be for you. (laughs) It must be somebody else they're after, right? Let's pray. Well, Father God, wow, we laugh a little bit with this and That's a good thing. It relieves a little of the tension. Oh, Father, these these things are serious matters because they represent the outworking of Your sovereign will. And, our Father, we know that if there's anything that You are deadly serious about, it is that Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that we, Your people, purchased with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed from the slave market of sin and and brought into a loving relationship with the God of the universe. That our heart's desire is to know You and to love You and to glorify You. And yet, Lord, we're frail. We're weak. We often fail We often, Father, sin against both our conscience and our God. And so we ask You to forgive us even now. Forgive us, O Lord, for making light of reality. Forgive us, O Lord, for exerting our own will and our own thinking above Yours. For substituting human wisdom for divine. Forgive us, O Lord, for searching for the loopholes and the reasons why we can evade obedience. No, Father, soften our hearts. Transform our minds. May Your Word do its work and wash us clean. Make us a people after Your own name. For our Savior Himself said, Who can make an accusation against me? And none could. O Lord, we are not perfect. We will never be free from the barnacles of sin. But our Father, it is our desire to be holy as you are holy. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.